0: I'm not talking
1: about something that I read. I'm not talking about something that I heard. I'm talking about something that I live.
2: Welcome back to the Boy and Island podcast. I am your host, Andrew Hurst. I'm an artist, musician, and writer working on my first book, Boy and Island, which is an exploratory memoir chronicling my experiences as a child survivor of the accident at Three Mile Island nuclear power plant. This is episode 2, part 4, from Sorcery to Utility, which has been a kaleidoscopic exploration attempting to answer the question, how did Three Mile Island nuclear power plant wind up in my backyard? Because you see, this plant loomed on my horizon my entire life, and it's still there, but exists now as an irradiated, toxic sarcophagus, and will remain lethally toxic for tens of thousands of years. So in the future... I don't want our children's children's children to dig up radioactive waste that we leave them to deal with. I want them to unearth artifacts of inspiration, like the Boyan Island book, in hopes that it permeates their soul with limitless passion and unique bravery, as a weapon to stare down elusive agents of cynicism and betrayal in whatever shape, size, or form that emerges in the future.
0: What's interesting about stories is is the public story and the private story. And what you have to learn is if you were in the room when the history happened, you have to learn that you're gonna have to live with the public story. It doesn't really have anything to do with what actually happened in the room. Chinese have a term for this. Uh, it's called Wild History.
2: Very well said, Richard. I was there when it happened, and Boyan Island is my wild history of the incident at Three Mile Island. <laughs> talk about in the room is The Arrival of Meltdown, the four-part Netflix documentary about Three Mile Island that debuted the first week of just this last May.
0: Middletown, Pennsylvania is on edge tonight. Highways
3: are backed up and telephones are jammed.
2: The accident at Three Mile
3: Island in 1979 was the worst nuclear accident to ever happen on American soil.
0: Plant officials say the accident
3: is not serious. They wanted to keep information from the general public. The company's statements have not answered several important questions. And they wanted to cover stuff up. How much radioactivity has already escaped from the plant? All
2: but the world needs to know what happened at Three Mile Island. My only problem with it is that I'm not in it. Oh, wait. Yes, I am, but very briefly, um, at around 3 minutes and 20 seconds in episode 1, throwing rocks in what looks to be uh, like the Swaterra Creek or maybe the Susquehanna River with my sister Lee as little kids, so you can see little Andy boy in there. But I thought it was really good overall, especially in the sense that it clearly and concisely illustrated the variety of reasons that the incident at Three Mile Island was serious enough to almost single-handedly derail the nuclear power industry in the United States, which contradicts the views of many contemporary pro-nuke advocates, who erroneously suggest that nothing really happened at the Three Mile Island, in comparison to perhaps the more bombastic spectacles that occurred during the full-on explosions at Chernobyl and Fukushima. But what happened at Three Mile Island was infinitely more insidious, emotionally and psychologically, in that, being though certainly not the first serious incident at a nuclear power plant, it was the first to be covered extensively by the media internationally, thus shedding light on some hard truths about this extraordinary but intensely volatile energy source, though initially utilized with terrifying accuracy as a weapon of war, was in fact plagued with mechanical blunder and human error from the ground up throughout the transition into its civilian industrial usage.
4: And it brought
0: into the vernacular the concept of a core meltdown. The
2: concept that a reactor is potentially unstable. People had never heard that before. What is undeniable is that due in large part to the media scrutiny that ensued in the wake of the accident, the nuclear power industry was caught with its pants around its ankles, unwilling and or unable to accept even the most basic responsibilities during and after the event, disregarding the health and well-being of the public and doing a disservice to their own industry, and through their negligence, suspicion, and contempt arose, clouding the wonder and promise of atomic power with a veil of paranoia and anxiety over promises not kept and questions left unanswered by flustered bureaucrats who treated the outcry from a rightfully horrified public as an annoyance that was disrupting their illustriously flawed science experiment.
1: Well, the community was very concerned about anything nuclear going on. There's air of distrust. So people say this, that, they mislead this. I don't have time for drama in my life,
2: okay? I'm thankful that the documentary included some dear family friends like Paula Kinney.
1: And as we watched Walter
0: Cronkite on national news, I think most of us were shocked that something like this happened to our little town.
2: Eric Epstein. This industry was in a rush to exonerate itself immediately after the accident. Mickey
3: Middick. That what were my children and myself exposed to in those three days?
4: And the irresponsibility of MedEd and the irresponsibility of NRC and how could this ever happen? And uh, I just hope that we do not become a statistic 10, 20, 30 years from now but I know we're gonna be a statistic. Have you lived through a cancer death? I have. If that one is my son, or my wife,
2: or me, I think it's wrong. Joyce Karate, the mother of us all.
0: I want you to look into my face, and I want you to remember every decision that you make about nuclear power, there are people like me that you involve, and you must take us into consideration. I really wanted to be able look my children in the eye and tell them I had done my very best, that I had really tried to make sure that they were safe. That was the thing that meant the most to me."
2: They were all affiliates of my father's grassroots protest group, PAIN, or People Against Nuclear Energy.
0: I joined a group, along with my friend Paula, called PAIN, People Against Nuclear Energy. Gentlemen we live in the daily repercussions of this accident daily ventings, the storage of high level waste on that island and the total incompetence of gpu
2: i do wish my father james's voice would have been included in the documentary he claims netflix contacted him but he didn't respond I'm not completely surprised by this, it is still very difficult emotionally for him to talk about and reflect on this traumatic period in our lives. And after saying yes to almost every interview inquiry for years and years, perhaps he feels rightfully that he left it all on the field. Since I'm now the appointed steward of his incredible archive, in which the Boyle Island book is largely drawn from, it's now my duty to illuminate and share his and our story, so that no assessment of the Three Mile Island incident will truly be complete without it. I was also really glad to see the extensive coverage of whistleblower Rick Parks' trials and tribulations and his decision to come after Three Mile Island plant owners and operators for their safety oversights.
3: Previously, I thought the people waving their arms in the air and saying no nukes and all that, I thought they were really uneducated to how safe the plant was but what started changing my mind was my experiences at three mile island
2: we owe him and tom devine and billy guard of the government accountability project a major debt of gratitude for their courage and good conscience
4: the government accountability project of the institute for policy studies is proud to be representing mr richard parks mr park's charges Bechtel, and General Public Utilities with reprisals and harassment after he and others revealed massive quality assurance violations and significant safety concerns. I'd like to turn the floor over to him to describe his experiences.
3: All I know is that I've always been an advocate of nuclear power. I still am, but I'm not an advocate of that type of management system there's no excuse in any industry, let alone the nuclear industry, when you are approached with a problem to totally ignore that problem and try to steamroll and railroad people who bring those things to your attention. Mr. Parks, do you expect to have your job still? Sir, I don't care.
2: When I began working on the Boyan Island project over a decade ago, it was as much rooted in the different unique perspectives and dimensions that I as an artist and creative thinker can bring into this story as it is an homage and a tribute to all the adults looking out for us kids during this terrifying experience, in which they had no guidebook or reference for. I don't take my parents' love and devotion, warmth, and protection for granted. So overall, I'm thankful that the Netflix uh, Three Mile Island doc is out there for people to get a good taste for what went down. And in general, I'm satisfied with how the Three Mile Island incident has been covered in this doc and in the handful of books that are out there. But in my view, there hasn't been an adequate response from the younger generation of child survivors who were a part of this. Boyan Island will be the first book on TMI from this vantage point. I feel it's culturally and existentially necessary. But this story is so much bigger and broader than this single event. For those of you that who've tuned in uh, thus far, you're probably getting the gist of that already since we've started all the way back at the Big Bang, for goodness sake. And all the episodes here build on each other chronologically. So if this is your first one and you're just tuning in, you go ahead and go back to the beginning. I think you'll have a better understanding of what we're getting at here. Let's go further and deeper and weirder together let's go where we left off last in part three of this episode i was discussing the strange and often elusive aberration of memory we call deja vu now i'm very interested in how instances of deja vu seem to be fleeting and concrete experiences simultaneously the color of sound or the architecture of the scent Such sensations, when experienced alone, can be strangely intoxicating and imbued with an eerie magic. Startling reminders of the tenuous grasp we have over our percolating subconsciousness. Equally compelling, albeit much less elusive in origin, is déjà vu when it is deliberately conjured by contemporary media forms such as the aforementioned... Orson Welles' Mercury Theater radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds or Charlie Chaplin's satirical skewering of Adolf Hitler, both discussed extensively in the last episode. But I believe the most compelling and disturbing instance of a modern mediated occurrence of deja vu was instigated by the 1979 Hollywood movie The China Syndrome. The China Syndrome
1: It's about people, people who lie, and people faced with the agony of telling the truth. Right! People like Kimberly Wells, a television reporter paid to smile, not to think. Richard Adams, a cameraman who never learned how to play by the rules. Jack Goodell, an engineer who knows too much to tell the truth.
2: In anything,
1: that man ever does there's some element of risk right well that's why we have what we call defense in depth and cares too much to lie no accident it will start with a tremor in a nuclear power plant where it will end will depend on three people i would say you're probably lucky to be alive same for the rest of southern california jane Fonda. let's face it you didn't get this job because of your investigative abilities kimberly don't fight it jack lemon
0: There was a vibration.
1: Michael Douglas. I don't
0: know that accident is the right word. Accident is the right word.
1: The China Syndrome. The harder they try, the more resistance they meet.
0: They've got their own security, man. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you want me to make it any clearer?
1: The closer they get, the more threatening it becomes. The China Syndrome. Today, only a handful of people ...know what it really means... ...and they're scared. Everybody keep Everybody keep your, Everybody keep your Soon, you will know... ...the China Syndrome.
2: Now, the China Syndrome got its name from a slang term... ...describing the hypothetical result from a nuclear reactor... ...that could melt down through its core structure... ...quote, all the way to China. The film directed by James Bridges, follows a TV reporter, played by Fonda, and her cameraman sidekick, played by Douglas, as they attempt to expose cover-ups and safety protocols at a nuclear power plant. Jack Lemmon plays the well-meaning nuclear plant operator whose pride over the technology he presides and his devotion to exacting technical standards are challenged when he uncovers wrongdoing by his supervisors and co-workers. Due to an ongoing culture of negligent operational oversights and mechanical malfunctions, the plant experiences an accident in which a near meltdown occurs. The film debuted on March 16, 1979, just 12 days before the virtually identical real-life accident happens at Three Mile Island. I can't think of a more iconic example in which a fictional occurrence presages an actual event. So closely correlated in time historically, and so kindred in their chronology, this is perhaps the quintessential occurrence of hyperreality in popular culture, wherein the interwoven links between the fact and the fictional mirror each other so succinctly that their individual smoldering luminescences melds as one, burning inward their constituent elements, each absorbing the other's myths and realities into ultimately a grotesque and unbearable synchronicity. And when the China Syndrome came out, there was a loud cry from the nuclear industry that this was something that could never happen. And within 12 days, people found out that it could. French cultural theorist Jean Baudrillard, who wrote extensively on the constructs of hyperreality, this inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality, wrote about the China Syndrome and its remarkable convergence with the Three Mile Island incident in his 1981 book, Simulacra and Simulation, and claims in this instance, quote, the real arranged itself in the image of the film to produce a simulation of catastrophe. And while I find Baudrillard's writings and ideas to be intriguing and provocative, to claim that the real event only produces a replicant of its fiction, or a simulation of catastrophe, is a cynical distillation of that catastrophe and those who endure it. I would argue that, in fact, as a result of the combined immolation of these proximal events, they transmutate into an aggregate force that, through their union, one of prophecy and one of tragedy, an ultimate higher truth is revealed. Baudrillard also states, quote, It is the simulation that is effective, never the real. Again, this assertion coolly detaches itself through the privilege of distance. But it's those on the receiving end of a tragedy and their suffering that always supersedes whatever theoretical or philosophical musings that are conjured in the aftermath. Susan Sontag, the American writer, And philosopher in her outstanding collection of essays regarding the pain of others published in 2003 adds that victims of traumatic events quote do not have the luxury of patronizing reality and that quote there is still a reality that exists independent of the attempts to weaken its authority surely this is a more even-handed and sympathetic view on the plight of the sufferer and accommodates the reality Of many of the natives like me and my family that lived in the small towns and villages in South Central Pennsylvania adjacent to Three Mile Island many who were farmers and manual laborers who had neither the time nor the money to consume Hollywood movies and it was surely these folks who bore the full brunt of the accident But there are no slick ruminations of hindsight that can be maneuvered to disguise the fact that what happened to me and my family and others in the communities around Three Mile Island was a violation. But hindsight does afford us the ability to clearly see that the accident was avoidable. Though largely dismissed by pro-nuke advocates as hysterics and inventions of the Hollywood Myth Factory, the China Syndrome script was in fact a composite narrative Based on true events. Scriptwriter Mike Gray based the film's accident on a real partial meltdown at the Dresden 2 nuclear power station in Illinois in 1970. In addition, the movie contains an instance where the cameraman, played by Michael Douglas, has an assistant who's run off the road by plant henchmen in an attempt to intercept sensitive documents he had obtained and was en route to making the information public. This incident is based on the real-life case of Karen Silkwood, a union whistleblower who worked at a plutonium fuel production plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. The character in the China Syndrome survives, but Silkwood did not and was killed on November 13, 1974.
3: Karen Silkwood was a plutonium lab technician at Oklahoma's energy giant Kerr-McGee Corporation. In September 1974, she agreed to become a spy for her union to collect evidence of unsafe and illegal practices at the plant. A month later, she was mysteriously contaminated with a microscopic amount of plutonium, the world's most toxic substance. The plutonium was traced back to a piece of bologna in her refrigerator. A week after her contamination, Karen Silkwood was killed in a car crash while on her way to deliver her evidence to a reporter for the New York Times. The manila folder she was carrying was never found. In 1976, the Silkwood defense team commenced a lawsuit against Kerr McGee, asking for damages for her contamination and death.
2: Later to become a Hollywood movie starring Cher, Meryl Streep, and Kurt Russell. On November 13, 1974...
3: Karen Silkwood, an employee at an Oklahoma nuclear facility, was on her way to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She never got there.
0: Name? Karen Silkwood. Bruce Stevens. Dolly Pellicer. Sweet
3: the sound that saved.
0: Sweethearts like your two people. Like me. I'm in love with one of them. I you, Was lost, but now I'm
2: found. Was bound, but now I'm free.
3: What about the radiation effects from all this material? We've all seen the poor guy suffering the effects of sunburn. Well, radiation's like that.
0: <laughs> there was a contamination in our section. They're saying that you did it. I just hate people talking about me that way. Karen, the company's got to blame somebody, otherwise it's their fault. Sounds like they're trying to get rid of you. I wish I could take care of you, but... I'm doing something good. I know what you're doing. You're the wrong person to be doing I was just thinking, if you'd ever quit, come away with me. I can't quit now. What are you doing in there? I'm so scared now. They're trying to kill me.
2: I moved to New York City in 1999 to attend Pratt Institute, where I eventually earned my MFA in 2001. At that time, I was only a few months into the tricky task of figuring out what my life after graduate school would look like. One of my part-time jobs was as a printer in a silkscreen factory called Brand X, which at the time was located at Vestry and Hudson Street, right below Canal, about 20 blocks north of the World Trade Center. On the morning of 9-11, I had just showed up for work when one of my coworkers with a face white as a ghost told me to go up to the roof. So I climbed up the stairs and eventually made my way to the top and looked south to see one of the Twin Towers with a massive gash in its side, smoking and discarding glittering shingles of glass and building materials, which flittered downward, catching the brilliant late summer sun as it drifted in the wind. I looked closer and closer to try to get my head around what I was seeing. Then I began to see dark shapes falling from the upper floors of the burning tower i started to realize that it was people jumping when i saw some were holding hands and falling together in pairs after a few minutes of this i couldn't watch anymore and i went downstairs back to the shop only to be evacuated by a security guard I'm told to leave the building and head north as i walked through the frenzied crowded streets of manhattan the second plane hit the other tower I didn't see that one, but I had to endure it a million times, like everyone else, later on TV, and it was obvious that this was no accident or coincidence. It was a harsh reminder that New York City, a place where so many people like myself came to for opportunities and inspiration, was also a target, resented for its libertine flamboyance and self-satisfied smugness. My sister Lee was also living in New York City at that time, and coincidentally, my mom was also in town on September 11th, and Lee and her were in the financial district close to the World Trade Center for a doctor's appointment. So as I made my way north, I headed to my sister's apartment on Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village to see if they were okay. But that walk from Tribeca to the village, though not much more than about 10 blocks, seemed to take a lifetime. It was complete pandemonium in the streets and the likes that I've never seen. Cab drivers abandoning their cars, bums banging their heads on the sidewalk till they bled, weeping, and zombified tourists in disbelief that they were getting way more than their money's worth from their walk on the wild side. Once we were all together back in Lee's apartment, all the phone lines were down, so we finally got a hold of my dad via email as he was at home back here in Pennsylvania, and after the, r- the relief that we were all safe, thus begun the interminable slog of being glued to our TV set for the next week, while the smoking ruins of the World Trade Center spewed a toxic, burning, metallic smell that stuck in your nose, the residue of fear and death, and memories of Three Mile Island began to wash over me. For the second time in my life, here I was witnessing firsthand in real time a tragedy of global significance, both events occurring on islands, and both involving towers with smoke emanating from their insides. But unlike Thurmael Island, whose territory is forbidden to the public, its secret inner workings concealed, Manhattan Island is conversely the world's playground, a monument to the open 24-hour pay-to-play Western dream and a crucible of American fantasies. The phallic protrusions of the Twin Towers jutting ever higher towards the heavens was the perfect symbol of the libido and primacy of Western capitalism, and thus a perfect target for those who felt either strong-armed or short-handed in the coldness of their shadow. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens
4: The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve.
2: And what was nearly as frightening as the attacks on 9-11 was the events seemed to provide a laser-like focus to a previously listless Bush administration. you
1: these folks that
0: say you're loafing here in Texas, that you're taking too long of a vacation.
4: They don't understand the definition of work then. I'm getting a lot done. Secondly, you don't have to be in Washington to work. It's uh, it's amazing uh, what can happen with telephones and faxes. Thank you so much. And uh, just a destiny of yeah. What are you doing the rest of the day? Uh, Karen Hughes is coming over. We're working on some things. and uh, She'll be over here, we'll work on a few things. I'm working on some initiatives. uh, You'll see, I mean there'll be be some decisions that I will have made while I'm here and we'll be announcing them as time goes on.
2: And what really began to emanate from our televisions was the all-too-familiar odor of resolve and revenge commandeered by the United States government in close cooperation with the news media and the entertainment industry the mobilization of the American war machine had begun. I, uh,
0: I want you all to know, I can't go any louder. I want you all to know
4: that America today,
0: America today
4: is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I
0: can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you and the people
2: Down, we'll hear all of us soon. A few days after the attack, at around 11 p.m. at night, I left my apartment near downtown Brooklyn to grab a few things from the corner deli. As I reached the end of my block at State and Bond Street, I saw something out of the corner of my eye and heard a whizzing noise whirl above my head. Then glass shattered on the ground nearby. Startled, I turned around to see where this glass was hurled from. Then, in the distance, out of the nameless dark, I hear, "Go!" And this was the precise moment for me that the post-9-11 period began. A period in which the convoluted politics of revenge that would soothe and reassure a grieving United States, but also transform this grief into a voracious, seemingly unified front of all that is good against all that is evil. And what was evil was reduced to the images of the faces of the 9-11 hijackers and the countries they came from. And anyone from those regions, or anyone resembling them, even a born and bred Italian-American man like me, was similar enough to raise suspicion within this climate of fear and aggression. Revenge, American style, has no gray area. And as always, the surefire way to summon patriotism is through the skillful arrangement of icons. And thus, the images of the burning World Trade Towers were circulated next to photos of the burning ships in Pearl Harbor. As was Thomas Franklin's photo of three New York City firefighters raising the American flag amidst the smoking ruins of 9-11, printed incessantly adjacent to Joe Rosenthal's famous photograph of six Marines raising the flag over Iwo Jima during World War II. The inter-iconicity of these images through their continuous dissemination in the media guaranteed not only a vengeful counterattack by the United States, but one that had big shoes to fill if it were to achieve the bombast and spectacle that was expected not only by our military lying in wait, but the corporations who would profit from the effort, and a news media ever hungry for ratings boosting drama and telegenic optics. In 2003, a new word entered the English language, militainment. We now consume war in much the same way as we consume any other mode of entertainment. This has become a prominent feature of American life in the 21st century. The blending of war and pop culture is not necessarily a new phenomenon. What is new is the massive collaboration between the Pentagon and the entertainment industries.
0: I'm watching, uh, they look like uh, Roman candles uh, going up into the night nice skies, I
2: stand on the, the desert sands. Uh... Uh, last night, a tremendous light show here, just a tremendous light show.
3: What some in the military call yes. the big show, which is to say an overwhelming, uh, awesome aerial campaign. This was not the opening act of this war that any of us had been prepared for, that you had been listening to and about for many, many weeks. That perhaps
2: this is the quote-unquote shock and awe phase, the beginning of it in any event that we had all been waiting for.
0: I still very much believe from people I've talked to that we will all be shocked and awed at some point. Mm. People I talked to today said, look, what you're seeing now is just setting things up. When the massive assault starts, you will know
2: it, there will be no doubt. Uh For part four, please, please, please join me next time for part five of episode two from Sorcery to Utility, when we will finally, once and for all, answer the question, how did the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant wind up in my backyard and cover the events that ended World War II, but unleashed the technology that could end the world and this podcast with the push of a button? Thank you so much for joining me. In the meantime, go back and check out all the episodes from the beginning and also check out BoyanIsland.com for more information on this project and take care. See you soon.